Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now and please touch and anoint the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us open hearts, take away the hardness of our hearts, and grant us the ability to hear God's word preached, to receive it, and to let it do its work in our lives. Lord, please give me the ability as the preacher of your word this morning to speak a word from you, not of, of human manufacture or human intuition, but from the very scriptures and directed by the Holy Spirit himself. So come now and do this work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the popular image of Jesus that's held generally in our culture tends to be a sentimentalized, and I would maybe use the uh, adjective, uh, oprified uh, distortion that is not really drawn from the pages of scriptures. And by the way, we are right on the verge in our culture in a time of transition where people um, are going to be saying that Jesus, Jesus, if he really existed, that's like saying if Julius Caesar really existed, but whatever, he was a bad man, he was a bad man. Now maybe you're familiar with the uh, satire website, The Babylon Bee, which is sort of a, a Christian version of The Onion. If you're not familiar with The Onion, it's hilarious. Sometimes it's, it's pretty awful, but it's, it's often very hilarious. One of, the most, one of the funniest things about it, I think, was about three years ago, uh, the, uh, the news broadcast or the news source for the People's Republic of China was reading The Onion as if it was actually news and reporting on American news through The Onion, which just made my day when I heard about that. Uh, but The Babylon Bee almost always makes me chuckle. And here's a piece of satire that illustrates my point on how people view Jesus. Now remember, this is satire. So uh, to use a technical and theological term, try not to get your drawers in a knot. <laughs> All right, headline, progressive Christian criticizes Jesus for not being very Christ-like. Dateline, Seattle, Washington. After reading several chapters from the gospel, Gospels over the weekend, local progressive believer Wendy Butler reportedly published a Pathos blog post in which she criticized Jesus of Nazareth for not being very Christ-like. The blog post took Jesus to task for his unloving and problematic teachings. He devotes entire sections of his sermons to ranting about archaic religious concepts like hell and the last judgment instead of just coming alongside the marginalized and affirming their sins, said Butler. Very little of what he did on earth I would describe as life-giving. Frankly, I do a better job of being Christ-like than Christ himself. He had a few good things to say about loving our neighbor, but the bad outweighs the good in Jesus' teachings. If we're looking at things honestly here, her essay continued, he really needed to ask himself, what would Jesus do more often? And then he'd have devoted a lot more of his time to social justice, like me. At publishing time, a horrified butler had discovered the description of the Redeemer coming in his wrath in Revelation 19. Well... That actually does illustrate how we have sentimentalized in popular culture our understanding of Christ. Uh, so if you ask most spiritual but not religious folks to describe the character of Jesus, you're going to get a list of traits kind of like kindness and tolerance and inclusivity, acceptance, sensitivity, 
and moral open-mindedness. And the process, though, of sentimentalizing Jesus and sentimentalizing the love of Jesus in this way, we have, in the words of Dorothy L. Sayers, pared the claws of the lion of the tribe of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. What we really need to do, brothers and sisters, in our culture, especially since as Christianity in our culture begins to recognize that we, are, we do have, uh, we're out of the mainstream. Traditional followers of Jesus are out of the mainstream. Ed Stetzer, missiologist, uh, I think he's, is he acting president of Wheaton now? He does something at Wheaton. No, he's head of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton. Uh, but a well-known uh, missiologist researcher indicates that actually about no more than 25% of the American population are genuinely um, convictional Christians. In other words, that their faith in Christ actually has some impact on their day-to-day life. Most, so when you hear that, you know, well, you know, America still, 70% of people still self-identify as Christians. That's like me self-identifying as a Swede. I can't speak Swedish. I don't live, live in Sweden. I know nothing about Sweden, really. Uh, and yet, for the purpose of filling out a form, I'm just going to say I'm a Swede. That's the, that's the nature of that 70% of self-identified Christians. So we need, in, in a culture like that, where we have a very watered-down or skewed understanding of the person and nature of Jesus Christ, we need to return to the Scriptures to remediate that distorted view of the one we call our Lord and Savior. So how does this description of Jesus, how about this as a descriptor of Jesus? How about, and this comes directly from our gospel reading this morning, how about demanding? How about intolerant of sin? He certainly is being demanding in John's text from the gospel we read this morning. He demands our complete obedience as his followers. This is what he says, John chapter 14, and I'll read verse 15 and verse 24. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father, the Father's who sent me. And we can't get off lightly by just saying, well, that's just John's gospel. It's not really everywhere. No, in Matthew's gospel, we hear a similar thing to this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm a Swede. I'm a Swede. It doesn't mean you have citizenship. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Indeed, in all of Scripture in general and in John's Gospel and in the Johannine letters for that matter in particular, we cannot separate the love of God from obedience to the will of God. You cannot separate the love of God from obedience to the will of God. Love always, always, always has a moral and ethical element in the New Testament. It's not just a feeling. So unlike what our culture says, love is love, in the Bible, love is rooted in the character of God. 
and not in our subjective emotional state. It's rooted in the objective character of God and not just how I feel about something in a particular moment. We can sentimentally call something love in our very worldly way that God actually says is death. We can call something love that God calls death. So if we claim to love God and yet live disobediently to God's will revealed in His Word, we are deceiving ourselves. Do you see what's being said here in the passage from John's Gospel we heard this morning? You can talk all day long about loving God, but if you are living in a defining... I'm choosing my words very carefully. But if you are living in a defining pattern of disobedience, a defining pattern of disobedience... And folks, I'll have to say, you know, I'm, I've, I've often um, claimed that there's like a 60, a 60 hertz... Uh, background buzz of sin in my life. You know, it's just always constant, you know, some, some attitude or thought. It's like, golly, I just can't get away from this stuff. So I'm not talking about how we uh, often slip and fall as believers, but those things do not characterize our life. They're the exception. Our trajectory is generally towards becoming more Christ-like. However, if we live in a defining pattern of disobedience to God, a defining pattern of disobedience to God, then we do not have fellowship with God. Genuine obedience to Jesus Christ flows. It is the outpouring of love. Keeping His commandments is an expression of love and not a means of earning His favor. That's what makes this grace and not legalism. For instance, people who are in love will do things that most normal people will not do for one another. Uh, We just had a young couple married here. Uh, It was really sweet and wonderful, and uh, I know how that feels. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You know, you're that young, and you're in love, and you you just feel like you could just eat them up, you know. (laughs) And then a few weeks later, you wish you had. So all these jokes have been cleared (laughs) in previous sermons. But for instance, no one in their right mind genuinely wants to give you a foot massage. Especially you get to be my age. Nobody wants to touch those feet. It's just gross. You know, we do what we can do, but, you know, I got old man feet now. Grandpa, I'm not giving you a foot massage. But people who are in love will give you a foot massage because it is the outpouring of their love. Our obedience to Jesus Christ is the outflow of our love, not the compulsion of legalism. So let me give you some very tangible yet uncomfortable and explicit biblical examples of disobedience to Christ that do not ref- that by themselves mean that we're not walking in love with Christ. These are very common things, and yet we often sweep them under the rug or act like they're not that important. For instance, a person who claims to be a Christian and yet is actively and intentionally espousing or promoting racial hatred is literally systematically rebelling against God's Word as revealed in Ephesians chapter 2. I don't care that you go to church every Sunday and Wednesday night too. Because in Ephesians 2, Paul shows that following Christ means an end 
to racial hostility and division. Speaking of the racial barrier and hostility between Jews and Gentiles in the first century, and you have ever seen racial, uh, racial hatred like that. Here's what Paul says. He's speaking to a church that has Jews and Gentiles in it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that means that if we continue to maintain racial hatred, what we are doing, we're saying, Jesus, I don't care that you died on the cross. It really didn't make any difference in my life. Oh, by the way, I'll see you in church this Sunday. You can't love Jesus and be an active racist. I'm not talking about the just stupid, ingrained, uh, thoughtless racism that we all are afflicted with, and you don't know it until somebody points it out. I'm talking about the person who is actively engaged and knowingly continuing to espouse racial hatred. Another example, it means that a person who claims to be a Christian and yet defrauds his or her employees of a living wage that's not business, that's living contrary to God's expressed will in the Old and New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. And that same principle is taken up in the New Testament in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. In fact, I think James is probably thinking about that passage when he speaks in that, in that little book about caring for those work for us. So if you claim to be a believer and can and afford and you can afford to pay pay your employees a living wage, but you do not, you are paying mere lip service to Christ. You don't love Jesus no matter how much you protest that you do. It means that if we refuse to love our enemies, and this is going to be an increasingly challenging point for us as followers of Jesus in this era. It means if we refuse to love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute and misuse us, we are not in love with God, and we have no fellowship with God at that time. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 27, 28, but I tell you, this is, these are his commandments, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, and now we can all kind of nod along with all of those, but let me get to the point that, that nobody in our culture really believes, and it's probably the most obnoxious part of the Christian ethic in the world that we live in today. This means that if you willfully choose to express your sexuality outside of Jesus' commandment regarding sexual love, you can protest your love for Christ all day long, but you don't really love him. Who says such a thing? That's so harsh. Well, Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. These are the parameters. These are his commandments. If you keep my commandments, you love me. The one who does not keep my commandments does not love me. Jesus says, haven't you heard that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? 
and said to them, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Another pastor friend of mine recently visited a young couple in their home. Uh, they were cohabitating. They were not married. Uh, they'd, been they'd been regularly attending his church. The young man was not a professing believer, but the young woman had been claiming to love and follow Jesus for many years. Yet for years she had repeatedly and unrepentantly and even with self-justification had rejected Christ's commandments in this area of her life. In fact, she was unrepentantly living with the man that she was with at that time. The pastor told her the hard word of the gospel, that she might have nice feelings about Jesus, but she does not love Jesus. Those kind of things, for us to say that in this culture, is very shocking for many people. It's like, see, I knew it. You are just a bunch of haters. Folks, look, first of all, we live in a sad time when disagreement means hate. But also, we need to recognize that truth claims have consequences. And just because, uh, and it's interesting to me, that many other religions in the world get a pass on their truth claims, but somehow the claims of Christ and his ethical claims over our lives are deemed to be hateful in and of themselves. I think this special, uh, special treatment of Christianity, choosing, it, choosing to uh, berate it above any other of the religions that have similar requirements and their theologies, is actually a sign that the Christian faith is the true faith. It's the one the devil has to worry about. But there's a problem with living and loving obedience to Jesus Christ. Here it is. It's hard. It's really, really hard. It's so hard that I'm not that good at it personally. The devil tempts us. The anti-God system of the world that we live in tempts us. Our very own flesh, our very sinful inclinations tempt us away from obedience and love to Christ. In fact, I would say these things are so insurmountable that it is humanly impossible to live the Christian life. So if you are feeling discouraged, you can stop. I know it's impossible to do this. But all things are possible with God. God knows that living the Christian life is humanly impossible. And so Jesus, he says, it, the scripture says, he gives us another helper. In the scriptures it's called the paraclete in the, in, the, uh, in the Greek language. One who is called alongside to help in order that we can live the Christian life. Jesus says in John's Gospel, John 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I want to stop right there and just say, listen to what... One of the names for God in the Old Testament, and here it is again in the New Testament when we speak of God the Holy Spirit, is helper. I'm not ashamed and I do not feel belittled to be, call, to be called anyone's helper because God chooses that name as well. He sends us a helper. We cannot do this on our own. 
Jesus will not require us to keep his commandments and then leave us to our own meager devices. Hey, guys, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Hope that works out for you. See ya. He doesn't do that. In fact, he will not abandon us to, in his call for us to live out the kingdom lifestyle. He says, John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. There's help. I'm not going away permanently. I'm coming to you in the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You know, in the King James Version of this passage, the Holy Spirit isn't called the helper. He's called the comforter. Now, that word has nice, cozy connotations for us today. I mean, think about it. There's a nice, warm blanket in your house. It's called a comforter. I think a lot of people right now, this morning at Christ Church, are attending the church of the Holy Comforter. But actually, they, the translators of the King James Version use that word comforter because it comes from the Latin term fortis, which means one who brings strength. Comfortus, one who comes to bring strength. The Holy Spirit gives us superhuman strength, not necessarily physically, but maybe occasionally, but he definitely gives us superhuman strength. Let me give you a... a uh, a sort of a banal example of that. Um, this past week, uh, I did something I, I try not to do. I avoid doing this, but somehow I managed to find myself standing on a, on a bathroom scales. And uh, it was shocking. I just want you to know there's a lot more of me to love. <laughs> and uh, you see, because I, I have, I, I was operating under, under the idea that self-indulgence was a spiritual gift. But actually, it's self-denial. I got that one wrong. And so I recognized that I had been living in self-indulgence, uh, evidently. And nobody told me beer has calories in it either. Did you know that? There should be a warning label with the stuff about the alcohol. This will make you fat. But it doesn't have that. So, so I recognized that I had not been walking in a, in a, a, a pattern of self-denial. And so I... Uh, so my inclination is, you know, if it's slower than you, eat it, right? Uh, little children, watch out. Uh, but but that's, that's, not, that's not the Lord. And so even though in my flesh my appetites say do this, God's Holy Spirit gives me the strength, and I found that strength. I know this is banal, it's, it's a little trite, it's not really earth-shattering, but folks, it kind of is in a way, because our basic need to consume calories can become an idol. And so, I, and you know what? God has given me strength. I mean, you know, I told you that love will make you do things that you don't want to do. I'm eating this yogurt that has no sugar in it, basically, in the morning for breakfast. Nobody should have to do that. But as self-denial calls forth, you can do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite airplanes, some of you have heard this story, but I love the P-38 Lightning. It, just, it occurs to me that, God willing, I'll probably live to be old enough to be around for the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War II. So all of these World War II, that's 19, uh, it'll be 2038, by the way, um, all of these World War II analogies that to me don't seem that dated, 
for, for young people. It's like, he's talking about the Revolutionary War again. <laughs> but <laughs> one of my favorite uh, aircrafts of World War II and one of the most important aircraft of World War II was the P-38 Lightning. Um, it was used for a variety of missions, a very versatile aircraft. It was really a, a, had long-range capabilities, high performance. Uh, it was actually such a great aircraft that they started to export it to the UK. The UK, the United Kingdom, e England said, we'd like to have P-38s to fight the air war here in Great Britain. So we shipped them a bunch of P-38 Lightnings, and they started flying them around. And those planes were horrible. They didn't do anything. I mean, they couldn't do anything like the performance our aircraft had done. Here's what had happened. General Electric, had, I know this, you're loving this. <laughs> General Electric had produced a, a, a turbocharger to be attached to the engine of the P-38. It's called a supercharger, actually. And that supercharger was top secret, uh, top secret technology. And so we kept it on our aircraft, but we didn't want the British to have that top secret technology. And the plane would not perform without the supercharger. Listen, the Holy Spirit is the supercharger in the Christian life. He is the supercharger that enables us to do what normally we could not do. He will be, he dwells with you, Mino. He abides with you and will be in you. There is great reward for this spirit-empowered obedience. As we live in obedience to God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will begin to experience more and more of God. The only people who can grow in their connection, their fellowship with God, are those who walk in obedience with Him. Jesus says, whoever has my commands and obeys Him, He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love Him, and listen, and show myself to Him. You want to see Christ manifested in your life? The first step is to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate those areas of our existence where we are not walking in obedience to Jesus Christ, where we are having a failure of love. Every time I sin, it is not so much a failure of me not doing the right thing. It is a failure of me loving Christ the way I should. And every time in my life that God has brought me to a moment of decision, a moment where I had to choose between painful obedience or going my own way, I, and I have chosen obedience, something wonderful has occurred. I personally and others of us in this room can give this testimony. I've experienced God in those moments in a profound way when I've chosen difficult obedience over easy disobedience. I'll never forget an act of reconciliation I had to perform one time. God's word demanded of, of me even though I was right. I still know I was right. But God's word demanded reconciliation and that it would begin with me. And when I sought reconciliation and on the way back home, I encountered the glory of God in a way I have never or very rarely experienced before. Obedience to God brings us into the presence of God. This morning, brothers and sisters, God wants us to begin to experience him more intimately. And the first step in living more intimately with God is asking the Holy Spirit, show me where I'm walking in disobedience. And then repent of that and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit in that area of your life. And as you do that, you will encounter more and more of the goodness and the riches and the grace and the pleasure of being in God's presence. And that, be that can begin for each one of you this morning, right here 
during Holy Communion. For those of us who are baptized followers of Jesus Christ, who may find that we love self-indulgence a lot more than self-denial, we can come to this table with repentance and ask as we receive these gifts of bread and wine to be filled anew, be filled up again with Christ's Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.